Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen keskin a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Dijon, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing The Sandman and The Resort, two shows that straddle the line between reality and fantasy. Yes, one being a little bit more fantasy, the other one being a little bit more reality. Yes, Um, and that is a slight spoiler alert for the resort, I guess, if you didn't make it past like the first episode. Yeah, exactly. It's fine, though. I I feel like that's a draw, so if people want to feel encouraged by it, they should. Yeah. How's your week been this week? I've been in the worst sort of mood this past week, and I'm not really sure why. I think it might be like the August sort of doldrums i don't really know like yes the dog days of summer yeah we're yeah summer's coming to a close things everyone just wants to be on vacation or at least like not working um yeah which is definitely how i felt and i don't know just feeling really kind of both antsy but also like kind of listless it's it's Mm -hmm. not not a great feeling that sounds about right for august yeah yeah. Is that how you have been feeling as well, or a little bit better than that? I think the the listlessness and also the restlessness is yeah. very true for me as well, just because it's um, fall and spring are my two favorite yeah, seasons. I don't, I don't particularly like winter and summer that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of waiting for September. Because you know how excited I was last week about how it was getting cooler? That's just <laughs> me getting excited for just sweater weather and Nora yeah. Ephron seasons. You know what I mean? Like, I think... The fact that it got hot again this week is really pissing me off. Um, R.I.P. New York. But yeah. yeah, anything else on your radar right now before we dive into TV? Nothing really. I'm doing my own barbecue at my place today. That's nice. With some friends to just to kind of feel something, you yeah. know. But just trying to graduate into manhood, you know, <laughs> by being a grill master. So we'll see how it goes. Cool. Well, outside of grilling and barbecue and August days, uh, what did you watch this week, Melon? This week I watched The Sandman on Netflix. So... Do you know anything about? Did you know about anything about Sandman before this Netflix series? Because yeah, I didn't. well, you, you knew of it. I am familiar with Neil Gaiman's work. I've read a few of his books. I've really enjoyed a few of his books. I mm. haven't really touched some of the more famous ones, like American Gods or right. The Sandman, uh, which yeah. is a Neil Gaiman work. I think it was a pretty like influential comic book originally. Is that right? Yes, yes. So, just for some background. I don't know how I completely skipped over Neil Gaiman in my extensive reading that I had as a child, but I have not read a single lick of Neil Gaiman, which is Mm. nuts because he's British. But yeah, so this Sandman was originally a DC comic. Um, It was a comic book series that was created in 1988 by the Neil Gaiman. Like you mentioned, American Gods, Good Omens, Coraline, you know, these are all his coming out of his brain. And the Sandman tells a story of this guy called Dream, a.k.a. Morpheus, a.k.a. Sandman, um, (laughs) who has many (laughs) names, but he's essentially the anthropomorphic personification of the Lord of Dreams and Nightmares. And he he is the ruler of the Dreaming, which is a realm where we apparently all go to, we, we all hang out in while we're sleeping. So the comic book series ran from 88 to 96. It had a total of like 75 issues. And the series got made in, like it got turned into 10 books. This series on Netflix right now, it covers the first two books. 
which are called Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House. And it's co-created, but I think there might be one, only one showrunner or maybe three, I'm not sure, but it was co-created by Neil Gaiman. He had a very, very deep, heavy involvement mm. in this. Um, and also David S. Goya, who wrote or co-wrote the Dark Knight uh, oh. movies. Um, and then Alan Heinberg, who wrote Wonder Woman and also like the first film. Um, and he's also like a, a child of Shonda Rhimes and like, he's uh, been in the TV, he's been in the TV circuit quite a bit mm-hmm. as a writer and producer. 11 episodes total. The 11th episode was a bonus episode. Um, and it was like a surprise one that came out after. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I guess the reason why this had so much buzz, uh, coming out of it that I, retroactively found out about is that it is infamously very very has been difficult to adapt so they've been trying to adapt it for about 30 years Mm -hmm. um much like dune for example which Mm. did end up getting adapted into a film but was fucking terrible that's just my opinion sorry oh the the first first yeah Yeah. yes um but i think this was going to be a film with joseph Joseph gordon levitt Levitt, yeah. yeah and that didn't work out um bless him i think he would have been great um yeah yeah, so this this is uh they're doing it they've done it yeah so what are your thoughts on this as someone that has read some of his work because my only gaming knowledge is i watch good omens and that's it Mm -hmm. um so i only know the tv adaptation version of his stuff what do you think yeah i finished watching up to episode six or through episode Mm. six so i missed the last few episodes which i know kind of take are more of a separate story arc in a sense um but yeah i think my feelings are i was really impressed by the first episode and then like as we move to the present and get more into these little sort of episodes or vignettes from this character's life and his quest to like uh find his objects yeah i think i enjoyed the first episode the most but Mm -hmm. i'm also you know not not into what happens afterward i think right. it's a an interesting show and especially in how faithful that it apparently is to the original source material um yeah that decision to like hew very closely i think for for better or for worse it again it always creates this interesting question of like what is an adaptation and like how should a series or a film like change for the screen compared to the yes. original written word Yes. And it's interesting because there have been so many issues and there have been like 10 books. And I was actually pretty surprised that over the course of 10, 11 episodes, they did two books. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, most of the time, one, I don't know, like one to one for me anyway. Yeah, it's either one to one or it's it's 0.5, you know, mm-hmm. to one Um, is kind of how I've notice the trend to be but yeah i yeah it, it's it is tough and i get that and i think it's interesting because someone that has not read or didn't know anything about sandman going into it mm-hmm. um i've been really enjoying it mm-hmm. i don't know there's there's something about the way and and i could see signs of it in good omens too where it's like the fantastical elements are so confidently communicated mm-hmm. that i'm i just believe it and i'm just like yeah i'm i have buy-in like <laughs> we're we're doing it we're we are traveling with this character and we're traveling within this world mm-hmm. um there have been mixed reviews and i've noticed mm-hmm. that the people that have read his work or have read the sandman comics are usually the ones that are not that into it i see um yeah maybe so, a case of like you know they love the original so much it's it's hard to maybe see it turn not exactly into what they had in mind in some ways right 
I think what it does is address that question of like IP and what should and shouldn't be adapted. And I feel like, I think as a base level, the way that studios are these days, they're only ever going to do <laughs> what well, it feels like that way anyway. Like they are confident in putting money into IP franchises. Yeah. And yeah. this is an example of that. And it was a comic book series first. It was a book first. It is the best medium for it. Um, that's why we, you know, the fans love it and everything. And this is ultimately a dilution of it, but mm -hmm. it's also a way for people to, and this is the, the good thing about IP, I guess, is people like me who don't know anything about it, I'm now curious about the books and I, mm -hmm. I will read them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so the, the thing that I wanted to chat to you about is like this new wave of fantasy uh, related TV, especially coming out. Um, we obviously have House of Dragons coming out, I think, today, um, when, you know, the day that we're recording. Mm -hmm. And then there's also going to be the Lord of the Rings series. And then yeah. this falls firmly into fantasy as well. So th there's yeah. just like a new. And again, this relates back to the whole IP wave also, like outside the realm of Marvel. Yeah. But how do you feel about this new, like, renaissance of, of fantasy TV um, or fantasy content being produced? Do you, are you pleased? Because you are a fantasy head. You yeah, fantasy. yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a fantasy head. I love trying out these different things um i mean my love of fantasy i think really stems from books which i think a lot yeah. of fantasy lovers probably they can relate to that um yeah. and then i love seeing how a lot of these scenes turn out on screen also and yeah. i think all of these places all these streamers these studios they have been trying to replicate the success uh of especially like the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the movie trilogy back in the day. Yeah. Game of Thrones and its original run. Yeah. These are sort of like high fantasy epics that unites both like the general consumer and also the more passionate fantasy fans in a way yeah. that I think seems to be quite difficult for a lot of other genres to mm -hmm. achieve. Mm -hmm. Of course, like now we have like Marvel and stuff, which does blend these elements of the fantastical in with like the superhero stuff and borrowing from different legends and folklore yeah. but there is like something so uh, i don't know so so comforting so nice feeling about just like a good old like fantasy not related to any of like the superheroes right and, yeah because yeah. i think the, the issue with marvel and i'm sure this is different for the comic book and and comic books and the fans can kind of like correct me. yeah the comic the issue, book does have like the uh sort of dc heroes sprinkled in exactly yeah and like the thing the thing about the marvel and the superhero is like yeah these pe these people themselves are supernatural and fantastical yeah but the world in which they live in looks very very similar to ours yeah until it doesn't when there's a fight scene do you know what i mean and it's you know and, or until you know someone snaps their fingers and apparently a bunch of us disappear spoiler alert whatever <laughs> um and especially i think with the trend of some of the movies these days there's a lot of like groundedness with the way that they're written Mm -hmm. in terms of the dialogue in terms of like the character work um yeah they behave like you know regular people you might see in like a rom-com or like yes. a, a workplace comedy in a sense yes yeah and uh, you know that can be great when it comes to like anything that taika waititi does for example with that but then for the most part i think people are still craving a fantastical world yeah, like the grandeur through and through. Mm -hmm. yes yeah and that's what we get with game of thrones that's what we get with lord of the rings and i think that's what we get here with sandman as well even though it is i think from what i've understood it to be 
Gaiman's work, it is deeply fantastical and I think it takes its fantasy very seriously. Mm-hmm. But the themes are also very human and very real and very mm-hmm. dark as well. It's kind of like what it does is it reaches within our deepest fears and it just kind of pulls them out yeah, and brings them up to the surface. And it's very gory in the emotional journey in, in which it does that. Yeah, and, um, I was yeah. kind of surprised... I know the original series is quite dark and, and creepy and there is gore and violence throughout it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still like even a little bit surprised by the gore or the, the, the deaths, the killing like that we saw in, in this version, just because oh, it yeah. was, it's like, yeah. it's a Netflix thing, right? So I've yeah. come to associate yeah. Netflix with a different kind of, you know, mode of being. Yes. And I think it also tricks you into thinking that it's not that mm-hmm. because there is a certain element of like silliness. Yeah. You know, which is, uh, I, I will say like as someone that's like a child of Doctor Who, you know, like I watched a lot of Doctor Who growing up. I, I can't tell if that's just like a, a British sensibility where we like, <laughs> we find it when it gets too self-serious we like to kind of pull ourselves out of it and like set a tone for silliness Mm. and you get that throughout it obviously there are some episodes that are just fully dark and you know i'm i'm thinking specifically of the episode 24 7 which i think is is that the diner episode yes um i was not expecting to be shaken (laughs) up like the way i was shaken up by the end of that as someone that is very comfortable with horror, very comfortable with psychological thrillers and doesn't really let them affect me. That By the end of that, I was really, really fucked up by it. Mm-hmm. Just because, again, I think it did that thing of talking about the depths of the darkness of human existence and just like brought it out and made it seem tangible and visualized it in a way that I think externalized it <laughs> and then you know, you end up staring at it and you end up feeling very, very afraid for for the state of humanity itself, which is, again, like it's a a deeply philosophical way to navigate this, which I, that's the adult part of it for me. It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the sex or the death or the gore or anything. It's like that part, because I feel like if I watched that when I was 11, that might send me into an earlier depression that I actually went (laughs) into in my childhood. Um, So I really, I really like that about it so far. I, w- I just realized that we we didn't really kind of give for, for anyone that doesn't know anything about this I, I think I should give a little bit of a context as to like what we actually see happening so we oh, yes sorry I think I think I directed us onto a tangent yeah it happens uh, it's a podcast after all um but <laughs> we meet dream when he is a prisoner um and we get the story of how he was captured he was captured for over a hundred years um, by this occultist who's played by Charles Dance. Shout out to the king of fantasy world villainry. He is mm-hmm. so good. And so he he's held by Charles Dance's character and held without his three tools that he has, uh, which effectively his capture and his lack of his tools ruins his realm, his dreaming realm. And, and he sent, which then sends people into a sleep coma, like a sleeping sickness because he can't wake them up and then some people don't sleep at all because he can't put them to sleep because he has that power anyway so the first half of the series uh, follows him as he's released and then on he's on the hunt for all of his tools so he can kind of get powerful get back to his realm and and he eventually you know rebuilds his realm the second half of the of the series is about a vortex who it, it, that's 
a person, basically, that threatens to weaken the walls between the real world and the dream world, which will then make him dream uh, powerless. And, you know, the vortex will take over his power. So it's him trying to, like, navigate that for the second half of it. I I wanted to talk to you about Tom Sturridge, who mm-hmm. plays Dream himself. What are your thoughts? What do you think of Mr. Sturridge? Yeah, he's an interesting pick for this. I think he, obviously, he's, like, been around for a while. He's had lots of different roles. This is maybe his first big global headliner yeah. And yeah. He does sort of especially like in the first episode, I was really impressed with just like his pale sort of like dark hair, dark-eyed yeah. like agony in a sense. He looks yeah. very unreal in a way yes. like how you would imagine a kind of fairy or like elf or um this yeah. like otherworldly being to look. Yeah. Yeah. I think I text you to say that he literally looks like a comic book character. Like he looks like yeah. an anime version of himself. Um mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 nuts. Yeah, but so I think he's probably a good pick. It's hard, I think, especially because in s- at least like the first half of the series Dream is essentially, well, first of all, he needs to get his tools back. He needs to regain mm-hmm. his power. And then he's mm-hmm. also in this ov- overarching journey to learn how to not be more human, but at least have more of an open heart to humanity, uh, yeah. regain his yeah. trust or get over his trauma at the hands yeah. of humans. Mm-hmm. So he's quite still. He's quite grave. He's um, He speaks in a very, like, solemn gravelly voice much of the time yeah um it's it's hard this is like a very sort of contained character uh mm-hmm. when he's not you know exercising his powers and things like that so it requires this kind of gravitas and i don't know just like a self-suppression in a way and yeah and I, I think seriousness yeah, yeah tom sturridge i i think he's pulling it off it's oh, it's, yeah. diff- it's a difficult thing to do without coming across as like completely boring and just like stilted i agree um i was honestly pretty impressed by how much he understood the assignment and delivered (laughs) um i didn't even see tom sturridge in this do you know what i mean it was like Mm -hmm. that's dream like that's morpheus i've Mm -hmm. decided who that is now and people take the piss out of like christian bale in the dark knight because he put on a voice and took the whole batman thing very seriously but I can see shades of that in this, especially mm. with the way that Tom Sturridge like changes his voice and the way that he talks. Yeah. But that's acting, baby. Like, I don't know. I, I, I genuinely think that acting, especially when it comes to a character as as realized as this one, as particular as this one, you should kind of dig down and go all the way down to your vocal cords and like really deliver something otherworldly, which I think he does. Um I'm really into it. I think this is a star-making performance. So Dream has other siblings, <laughs> the twins, Despair and Desire, Death, and I think there is another sibling that they refer to as the Prodigal Son that we haven't seen. I guess we're going to meet maybe in any following seasons if they ever get greenlit. Um, and then we also hang out with Lucifer in Hell, who is played by Gwendolyn Christie, who is obviously, if you have watched Game of Thrones, you know exactly who she is. Did you have a favorite out of the, you know, the the other characters, whether it's his siblings or someone else? Did you have like a favorite, um, especially because we have like two villains that are quite particular as well? Um, I like Death, I think, mm. played by Kirby Howell-Baptiste. Who- yes. Has been in a bunch of shows, um, like small, small roles in a bunch mm-hmm. of different 
different series, especially. I guess it was, it's both like the idea of the character and also the way that <sighs> yeah. she played her. Like this, um, personification of death and what that means to, to be this kind of grim reaper, essentially, and how yeah. you have to love humanity to be able to keep doing a, a job like this, a thankless yeah. job in a sense. This actress is, she's very good at playing these kind mm-hmm. of like, charming like very um someone you would want to be friends with i really enjoyed the episode that had her that introduced her and also yeah. uh you know hit home for dream like of how he needs to open up to the idea of humans um through his like friendship with this guy who he sees every hundred years yeah oh i love that episode so much yeah i um, think one of my favorite same same i think if 24 7 haunted me i think that episode healed me completely mm-hmm. from from whatever whatever shock I went through. Apparently, so Neil Gaiman's doing like the press tour, and he mm. keeps kind of talking about the same things on on podcast episodes and like mm-hmm. interviews and whatever. But the thing that he has been repeatedly saying at this point, um, which makes sense, is that when he wrote Death um, in the comic book series, he had a lot of people coming up to him and just thanking him for writing a character because they were grieving the loss of someone and it just comforted Mm. them to know that that could be a possibility that you know the grim reaper is essentially not someone horrific um and is someone that is kind Yeah, yeah exactly um and he apparently has been telling uh hal baptiste as well that this might start happening to her like like she might end up getting fans coming up to her and just you know like talking to her about their grief and and how much of a comfort her character was for them yeah that that episode broke my heart it really like in in the best way possible it is very very sweet um Mm -hmm. and that hope is that his name hope the guy that he meets up with every hundred years oh um i think it's like like yeah yeah um again like that's such a that's such an interesting adult thing to talk about which is like what would you do how would you feel if you lived forever like what does it mean to live forever um yeah there is a part of me that wishes that we you know indulge in a little bit more conversation with him but yeah um but other than that it was it was fascinating it's just like my my husband who didn't watch it with me would like get glimpses of it um of, of the screen as i was watching the episode and he's like what is this show about like i don't <laughs> there is no one episode is the same and i think yeah. that's like probably like the th- that was my favorite thing about it it was just like taking a very very fun walk in a park um so i want to give a shout out quickly to david thewlis as uh, a truly horrifying villain mm-hmm. i don't want to give too much away i think his name is john I've forgotten mm-hmm. his last name. Um, and then also like Boyd Holbrook as Corinthian, who is <laughs> a, a serial killer. Um, he's basically an, a, a nightmare that Dream conjured, um, mm-hmm. at, who has left the realm and gone into the real world and it like doesn't want to go back. Like he doesn't want to go back to the Dream realm. Um, fascinating. Also, the best, the most fascinating part about it is that he's, I think, the only American in this, uh, or one of the very, very few Americans in this production. <laughs> and, I'm gonna say half of the half of the actors are doing American accents. Uh, they're all like Brits doing American accents. So, shout out to my people. Some of you did it well. Some of you didn't so much. It's fine. <laughs> but I I think my critique of it was costume design was kind of bad, dude. And yeah. it was sometimes good. I think what they did with Dream was great, like the long swishy coats and the Gareth pew and and all of that. But 
you know, I was kind of disappointed with the rest of it. I think it was trying to do the thing of like, oh, these are trying to pass as normal people in the real world. Like, for example, with De- with Death's character. But I think like a tank top and jeans and boots is just not enough. It's just not going <laughs> to cut it for me. Um, I think we just yeah. need to, you know, seek a little bit more from that. Um, yeah. That goes Some- for... Yeah. Sorry, that goes for like Lucifer's character as well. I thought Lucifer could have mm-hmm. could have been given some better looks. Um, totally yeah. agree. And in the episode that we just mentioned, where he meets up with his friend Hob every hundred years, like some of those costumes and the hair, like that they tried to do for every period, it really looked like bad cosplay. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Just yeah. not what you would expect from a production that presumably has this kind of budget or yeah well care about into it. all the money went to the vfx um oh right <laughs> i will say uh the, i think the thing that also made it even more pointed was that the production design was fantastic the the one thing that was especially like painful for me to watch was when we met desire and despair as well eventually mm-hmm. the the room in which desire works out of like their their realm is amazing like it looks it looks wild it's like red curved wall shiny like patented like it looks Mm -hmm. amazing it looks so so beautiful but then the way that they dress desire is like a halloween costume yeah yeah like a cheap halloween costume like i was again like maybe it's like the playfulness that they're trying to get but i don't care like no like i think you should be serious with the costume design you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that we are very serious about costume design. <laughs> um, but that was the thing I think that, you know, disappointed me a little bit. It felt a little bit lo-fi. It felt a little bit like, um, you know, not to bring it back to Doctor Who. Doctor Who did not have the biggest budget, <laughs> even though it was like one of the biggest BBC series. But mm. it's a state-run channel. They didn't have that much money and they did the best that they could. Um, and it reminded me of that, but this isn't that. So if you have any spare space in your tv diet for some fantasy i recommend this as the thing that will fill it up uh, if you are wishing or hoping to scratch a fantasy itch um this was fun for me dude i think it's a good time all right jenny so what did you watch this week i watched the resort which is on peacock for a change um so maybe get up get your get your free trial for peacock for this yeah so this is a i guess you'd say a mystery comedy drama series by andy sierra who you might know from palm springs which we very briefly discussed i think way back in the early months of this podcast yeah dude that was like the first pandemic streaming hit yes yes so he's that guy um, so this is a series that is going to have a total of eight episodes, and as of now, six have been released. So our discussion covers the first six episodes. So this show stars uh, Kristen Milioti as um, Emma and William Jackson Harper as Noah, a married couple who are vacationing in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula, specifically for their 10-year anniversary of, of marriage. Hmm. And the relationship is clearly a little bit strained, mostly on Emma's part. Like, you can see her, like, Googling stuff for, like, mm-hmm. how do you know it's time to end a relationship or something like that. Yeah. And while they're on their vacation, she stumbles across this old, like, long-abandoned cell phone. And that leads her to this mystery that she and Noah eventually get sucked into about a pair of teens who went missing 15 years ago at a now abandoned resort that was mm-hmm. like totally ravaged by a hurricane. Yeah. 
so that's the basic premise. And then this the series also stars um, Luis Gerardo Mendez as a character named Baltazar Frias, mm-hmm. Skylar Gisando as one of the missing teens named Sam, and Nina Bloomgarden as the other missing teen named Violet. Mm. So, uh, at first glance, I think everyone will agree that this pretty much seems like it might turn into something else if you don't know like who is involved and what this is actually about. So, you know, maybe you'll think it's a resort sort of satire, social commentary, like the white Lotus. And then it kind of morphs into more of like a sleuth kind of mystery searching for these missing teens, like a classic sort of sleuthing thing. Um, But as the episodes progress, I think especially as we get into maybe episode three or four, it becomes clear that the show is going to get much weirder and stranger and and then you remember, oh yeah, this guy who who made the series, he did Palm Springs, which is yeah, very much like oh yeah, vacation, like regular sort of movie that turns into something very very strange. Um, yes, yeah. So it's that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on it so far, Pellin? And how far have you gotten into it? I'm all the way caught up. I really like it. But my first question for you is, what was your first cell phone? I actually think it was a Motorola Razor. Oh, shit. You were one of the cool ones. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm so jealous. See, um, I, I, I also had a Motorola, but it was the cheap ones. You know, like the super small round curved ones that had a little oh, bit yeah. of an antenna. I think it's like V something. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten the number for it. It's just when we, when we started seeing those old cell phones, I was like, wow, Motorola Razors. I did, I did eventually end up getting one, but it was like way, way later when they were way cheaper. Anyway. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I know this about you. This is excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like this I like this series a lot. I think what I liked about Palm Springs applies here. Um not mm-hmm. to compare the two or keep comparing the two, but just the tone of it, you know, the you know, the playfulness, the jokiness, the sarcasm and also the trickle of information that we're getting over the episodes in terms of the mystery and how it's transforming over you know, like it's a half an hour episode, so I'm just pretty fascinated as to how they've done it, where it doesn't feel like the pacing is off in any mm-hmm. kind of way. Like it feels very, very even keeled um, all across the board. So I'm really enjoying it so far. I think the things that I don't like about it are neither here nor there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, overall, I I really like it. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree with that assessment, especially like um, what you said about the things you don't like about it. So mm-hmm. it is the, the kind of show that my final valuation ultimately is like, in spite of, you know, X, Y, Z, small right. things. Yeah. I liked it. Um, yeah. It's that kind of show where there, there are flaws, there are like some issues, but I think overwhelmingly it's just like really pleasurable and really watchable. And yeah. the episodes go by so quickly, which again, they're just half an hour, but they zoom by I I feel like this sense of anticipation and suspense like amping yeah. up and I really want to know what's like at the heart of this puzzle box mystery. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I guess this is like a slight spoiler territory, but we are getting suggestions of some kind of weird time travel, time loop, mm-hmm. magical realism kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm and I'm digging that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, and you know, I think the the biggest compliment I can give it is that it looks like all of the actors are having the time of their fucking lives. Mhm. Apart from the first, uh, apart from the two co-protagonists, which which is the married yeah. couple. Um everybody else seems like they're having 
such a great time or like for both timelines both the current one and the, the timeline 15 years ago um, yeah so yeah i think that that is a big part of it like the characters i really like most of them um i think sam and violet in the previous timeline are are great especially yeah you know they're portraying sort of like young you know college students maybe in around 20 or 21 mm-hmm. uh i feel they feel their chemistry i feel their charisma both separately and together mm-hmm. like these performances are just really solid yeah. um i'll yeah. say my favorite character and portrayal is balthazar same yeah, yeah. he is like just the highlight yeah (laughs) just just king he brings like a lot of this um local sort of connection like you you have this almost local mystery and intrigue surrounding him and his background and his family Mm -hmm. Uh, but then you have like the character itself who is so he brings so much like character and color and elegance and of course like his his classic like um detective sensibility and desire it's a really great mix i thought his introduction in the past was fantastic that <laughs> dance scene um yeah i i liked also how they i mean you could kind of see this twist coming but you know he goes from this presumed villain to again slight spoiler territory to ally or friend or like at least like co-leading character yeah um yeah. just overall very very good just um, comedy like I, I i think the thing that i like the most about him and also who's the who's the woman that he is best mates with Luna. Luna. Him and Luna are, um, I think, my two favorite because they're just funny as hell in their own way. And you can totally buy into the fact that these two are best friends. Um, And even the way, like, with Balthazar and his family and, like, the the danger of his family, it's Mm -hmm. also, like, very playful in the way that it's delivered. So it's almost like it's not really a threat, but is it you know it is until it isn't kind of thing and that just the fun of that i think is is really cool too yeah Yeah. i think the the pair that i'm having a little bit more trouble with is unfortunately emma and noah same like here chris emiliotti and um william jackson harper they are both kind of playing to type they they have played these sorts of characters before as a pair i don't know that i'm getting much of a read of their chemistry or even yeah. the sense of like faded chemistry since yeah. they are like a little bit strained they have suffered this this loss and i think especially the the character of emma who is i think you could you could say she is the lead protagonist out of this this ensemble cast mm-hmm. obviously she has suffered a loss she's suffered you know tragedy uh, you you want to feel both you know sympathetic and empathetic for her but it's also sometimes frustrating to watch yeah. a character like this it, it just like sort of sucks the air out in a sense yeah i mean i liked i thought there was one scene where you could really buy the fact that they were married and have been married mm-hmm. for 10 years and are best mates and it was when they are going through the texts of the phone in the back of the bus um, yeah that and was fun. just that interaction between the two of them i was like i totally buy this but you're right i think the the distance between them and her emotional vacancy is reading a little bit like underwriting as opposed to uh, what I think it's trying to go for, which is just she's feeling a bit hollowed out. And like that yeah. is that is still an emotion that we would like to kind of, talk, you know, explore. I think it will work as long as it sticks the landing with it. You know, as yeah. long as we get a catharsis at the end, I think it will explain the entire journey up until that point i initially mm-hmm. thought that she was dying before we found out yeah well she might maybe she maybe still she is. still is dying who's to say yeah right um 
Because I, that would warrant that kind of, you know, distance, I think, that she yeah. has. And, like, this focus that she needs to get something right before she does die. That would explain some of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still two episodes left to go, so we will see. Yeah. I also like to bring it back to, like, I guess the, the plot and the drip of information. Mm-hmm. I've been loving every episode, like, as things get uncovered, this, like, drip of, of secrets and information. Yeah. I think it it really helps with that sense of anticipation that mm-hmm. I'm... I've just been on like a high watching this. We are getting to a point though, where I think there is a little bit, you know, the, the paranormal, the fantastical, the, the supernatural stuff is just sort of like piling in at the moment to the point where I'm a little bit lost. I don't really Mm -hmm. know what's going on. And maybe that's supposed to, to mirror the character's sense of like, what the hell's going on? But like suddenly we seem to go from like, okay, there, there's something going on with like, this hotel and the, the, the owner of this hotel and the, these kids. And then now we're pulling in like stuff from, you know, Violet's mother's book mm-hmm. and like this author and like this, um, Pasaje like forest. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's all sort of piling in in a way that is slightly confusing me. Mm. It's, it's hard to make sense of, mm. but I'll get through it. I still enjoy watching this. They are doing quite a bit of exposition to try to, clarify some of these things yeah. but it's i guess it's like their attempt to address the uh sort of flood of a little bit more of the out there forces that are, yeah. that are coming into play it does feel like there's a there's a rush towards the, yeah. the in end the past, like maybe two episodes especially yeah i think that we're not gonna get a straight answer at the end of this i think this is gonna do you yeah i think it's gonna end on a cliffhanger and i think we're gonna get a season two. Oh my god that's what i think but if we do end up having a nice tidy little limited series neat and tidy bow on the end of this like what do you what do you think is gonna happen like what are your predictions yeah well i think the the teens are alive i think they mm-hmm. have mm-hmm either been stuck in this like Pasaje sort of in between space or they are living in this current time period now again like sort of isolated and closed off yeah. and I think that now this is going more into like a theory realm which is yeah. I've, I've been reading some theories online oh but yeah there's like a theory that Emma is like Violet's mother and I think that's a little <gasps> bit out there for me but I don't know. What what are your thoughts so far? Predictions slash theories slash comments? Well, as someone who watched Dark on Netflix, which is all about passage of time and uh-huh. loops and whatever, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's what they end up doing. Just It's just a whole lot of, you're my mom and we're, you're 15 years younger than me and this, what the fuck's going on? Like all of that. However... If that ends up happening, I don't think we're going to get that in this season. I think we'll get that in the second season or the third even if it gets renewed. I mean, if they do want to tie this up, I think exactly like you said, they have been stuck in a certain time. They don't want to leave. It's up to them to try try and convince them to leave to come back to their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Like the teens. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I'm just firmly in the camp of like, we're not going to get a neat and tidy explanation and ending at the end of this, which it, I, that hadn't occurred to me. And it's sort of like, does that annoy is, you? Is dev is it kind of, because <laughs> I was like, oh, this is, this would be a really great, like limited series. But now that you mention it, 
you know, it isn't classified as a limited series. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. do only have two episodes left and a lot of questions hanging in the air. I think you're probably right that they, they, they may be planning to continue this. Yeah. um, Which is pretty common. I think with like increasingly common, maybe with, um, these puzzle box sort of series that are coming out. Yeah. Yeah. People think they might be limited, but actually their, their plan is to go even longer. It ultimately doesn't matter to me. Like I I get Mm -hmm. that it is annoying because you do want the answers, but that's not the draw of this series to me. Um, yeah, because I just I think they've done such a good job of the tone of it and the way that it's written that I just enjoy hanging mm-hmm. out with them for half yeah, an hour. Like the fact that like I didn't know that this existed. You said that you were going to watch it this this week, and then I was like, yeah, I'll watch a couple episodes and see how it goes. <laughs> and then I just I, once I started, I sat and I caught up in one sitting. All yeah. the way up into episode five, which is how yeah. many had been out when, when you told me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm in. Like, this is so good. Like, it's so good. It's such good caliber of TV writing. And I think it's a shame that it's on Peacock because then not as many people get to watch it. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's it's nice to have a little, like, a little gem that you kind of keep for yourself. And if you know, you know, kind of thing. So yeah. I'm enjoying it a lot. I think, yeah. I think even... The suggestion that it was like a passage of time thing, which is very similar to Palm Springs. You know, initially mm-hmm. I was a bit like, oh, that's a little bit unoriginal. Like, um, <laughs> oh, this guy just keeps going back to time stuff. Yeah, which, again, if that's your fascination, though, as a writer, like, yeah, keep, right. keep writing it. I, I, Everybody writes the same things that they like over and over again. That's nothing new. It's just um, yeah. I didn't mind yeah, it eventually because I was like, well, this is funny as hell. And I'm really enjoying the time that I'm spending yeah. Right. And with time comes, you know, the ability to explore these sort of deeper themes, the the philosophy in general. Exactly. Like you have yeah. time, you have memory, you have loss, and how all of these things sort of feed into each other yeah, and play exactly. out in these strange spirals and loops. So, yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, if time is your thing, um, as it is a creator's thing, I, I think you'll love it. If you like... The sort of classic uh, detective style sleuthing mm-hmm. and like uncovering things and quests. I think this is for you too. Um, yeah. I, I do really sincerely look forward to every episode. Same. Um, Same. Like, I'm, it's yeah. Thursdays and I'm like, oh, it's Thursdays. Like, it's resort day. Like, I, yeah. yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Good time going on all, all around. Yeah. This week in culture. We are going to talk about something that everyone seems to be talking about, um, which <laughs> is this, I guess you could say, interaction, this exchange, this tussle between a New York Times critic and Amanda Stenberg, the actress. Yes. So, for context, Lena Wilson, who works for the New York Times, I believe her... Her full-time job is something like a project manager, but she seems to write pretty regularly for, you know, just it's like film review section, Mm. um, like every week or so. So she reviewed Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. I think it was like a somewhat, you know, mild review. It's it's kind of negative. Yeah, it's not positive. She calls it, no, no. She calls it a a 95-minute advertisement for Cleavage, which is designed to be like a nice soundbite a nice thing for twitter you know quoting and stuff yes, like that yeah voicey um, is what editors yeah. like to call it yeah yes. so she published this review on august 4th when the movie came out um and then recently she she posted i think a tiktok and then also like a tweet 
with a screenshot of a DM she had received from Amanda Stenberg, actually, who stars in the movie Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Mm-hmm. And the comment that she received from Amanda Stenberg was something like, you know, great review. If you had taken your eyes off my my tits, maybe you could have, you know, actually watched the movie more or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Actually, kind of funny, but like, um, Lena Wilson was like, she felt like very uncomfortable, unsettled, like very not happy with this sort of DM. Like it, I guess in the context of like critics versus the, the artists or stars whose work they reveal, there is like this long standing tension oh, because yeah. like, yeah, sometimes stars or artists will at a critic and send hundreds or thousands of fans their way to harass them etc it's like a very long running sort of you know back and forth Mm -hmm. and like discussions of who has power and who has like the the upper hand in these dynamics and things like that in this case lena wilson was the one to kind of post this or publicize this it was like a a a dm a private message I, i think over instagram and then it was really interesting to see the reactions, I think, especially because at first, Lena Wilson, she got a lot of sympathy from, I think, other film critics, other writers, uh, culture writers in the space, like mm. being like, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. Um, <laughs> Lena Wilson herself interpreted it as kind of like homophobic, like the comment about tits um, when Amanda Stenberg is is also, you know, gay. Uh, Lena Wilson and yeah. Amanda Stenberg are both gay. And yeah, it sort of devolved into this whole thing. And now actually the tide has firmly turned the other way, Ooh, like yeah. among the greater public and other members of the media or whatever. Like now it is being pointed out like, actually like you didn't have to post this DM. Right. Um, you're the one who sort of brought it to the public's attention. Yeah. Uh, devolving into a whole big thing. It, it's discourse now, unfortunately. Yeah. So the I think what ended up happening was Amanda posted a video explaining why she sent that DM, and she was kind mm-hmm. of like laughing through it. Um, which is yeah. which is I think appropriate because this is stupid and it's all funny. She was trying to like express her side of it, and part of mm-hmm. her side of it was like you know first of all we're both gay women. I was just kind of I thought we could joke about this yeah and and the dm is like if you read it it's a little bit flirty it's a little bit light it's light very it's very light humored like just a bit of a sarcastic dig you know really really very harmless nothing to be concerned of and anyway and then like i think amanda was like uh, she was like i get it like i get the whole a24 like i get that part of it but with this it was true to my character she's wearing a tank top but it's not my fault that I have tits (laughs) like uh, there's really Uh you know which is something that is a genuine issue uh in terms of you know a lot of younger children for example that grow and have hit puberty and have bigger boobs find themselves sexualized just for you know just for literally just having the body that they do which is uh you know evergreen I you know it comes down to like Lena is totally fair to not like the movie and it's totally fair for her to have flowery language that is a little bit mean it happens all the time it's also i think up to the actress or the actor to say whatever they want to say in response like i think a lot of people have been bringing up how it used to be in the 50s 60s 70s where there would be like critics versus artists and actors like being sworn enemies and like hating each other and being very vocal and mean about it and like you know bring it back or whatever and i think that there is some fun in this i think when when we first started talking about it i was like oh my god i love it when my fellow gays 
fight. It's so much fun <laughs> to see this drama unfold. But yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the tide, like the whole like nepotism baby thing is coming up again, and like, sure, yeah, sure, I think that the whatever. thing that people have, I think the thing that people have found is that Lena Wilson's father is an, an editor at the New York Times. They they love to, they love to like sort of do whatever they can for for like the the power dynamics, right? Yeah. Like to see who is the underdog or um, in each situation, yes. and then like appropriately assign their reaction to this yes. and. I don't know. We always say this, but we always say, like, it's not that serious. Um, (laughs) But unfortunately, like, it has become that. Like, I I think you you can find in Lena Wilson's, like, initial reaction, like, she tried to move to the kind of, like, identity-based sort of thing Mm -hmm. where she's like, you know, Amanda Stemmerk is being um, homophobic against me. Right. And then, like, in this, Amanda Stemmerk herself didn't really you know respond in a way that was too out of pocket i think Mm -hmm. but in a lot of the sort of defense of amanda stenberg we're also seeing now like this sort of turn towards like um well lena wilson is racist for doing this and right yeah i think maybe they're like you can point to at least like a history or a pattern of white people white women trying to paint like women of color or especially black women as like aggressors Mm -hmm. But again, like, it's such an easy thing to sort of reach to that it seems a little bit like it didn't have to get that serious, like, on either side. Yeah. Like, it didn't have to be assigned this, like, accusation of homophobia right. or or racism on yeah. sort of either side. It's just funny because um, I think with Lena Wilson, like, it's getting over and veering into social justice language. And sure, there might be some shades of it. But at the end of the day, this is just about two girls fighting, like, which I find really fun and like by girls i just mean i and literally by girls i I mean that in a gender neutral term in that it's just two people the girls are fighting the girls are fighting it's just two people that got petty and are now being petty with one another and that's fun yeah it's fun to watch it i'm sorry but like i'm entertained i admit like i'm kind of charmed at the thought of like a kind of famous actress or singer or whoever can just sort of slide into your dms and yeah and tell you privately how they they felt about something that you wrote about them it's kind of i just it's kind of fun it is fun the thought that that can happen if i was ever in that position i would find it so entertaining that i got under the skin of someone that definitely didn't need to read anything that i've written about them and definitely never needs to worry about me ever you know like yeah i wish i wish the best to both of these uh people to both parties involved all right, so that's it for Culture Notes. Um, if you were watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us give us that five stars and tell your friend that we're the best um otherwise don't bother with either thank you um (laughs) thank you so much we will see you next week bye criticism is dead is produced by pelin keskin lu and jenny chichon our music is by rika our artwork and design are by sarah macias and andrew luke